Our scripture passage for this evening comes to us from Genesis. Genesis chapter 14. The verses we will focus on are verses 1 through 16, found on page 12 and 13. For context, Abraham and Sarah have just come out of Egypt. In verse, or I'm sorry, in chapter 13, Abraham and Lot have separated with Abraham staying on the west side of the Jordan River and Lot traveling south towards Sodom where he saw that the ground looked like it was better for his sheep. Now we pick up the reading at verse number 1 of chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elisar, Keterleomer, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Birsha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemaber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. All these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, which that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Keterleomer, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Keterleomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtaroth, Karnaim, the Zuzim in Ham, the Emim in Shaveh Kiriathim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran on the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to Enmishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazazon Tamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out. And they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Keterleomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abraham's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eschol and of Aner. These were allies of Abraham. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions, and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions, and the women, and the people. So far, the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ, when I was growing up in western Washington, I grew up in a dairy farming community full of old
older dairy farmers and their descendants. My grandfather and a number of other Dutch dairymen helped lay the foundations of the church that I grew up in. And Dutch dairy farmers are known for a few different things. They're known for having a tight budget, which meant that salesmen weren't always welcome. They are known for coffee time at about 10 o'clock, which is not to be disturbed unless it's harvest or planting season. And they are usually elders in the local church. They are also known for a few different sayings, some of them being, well, that's how we've always done it, in regards to both their personal work life and also things in the church. Or, that is a slippery slope when new and creative ideas sometimes get pitched, whether that, again, be on the farm or in the church. And those phrases, especially the latter one of a slippery slope, can be sometimes used because of uh, uncomfortableness with change. But it can also be used as sort of a scapegoat to avoid trying to dig into something to see if it's a good thing to do. I would argue as we look at our text today that Lot who is smack dab in the middle of this story that we read, could have probably used some more Dutch dairy farmers in his life, telling him to be careful about the decisions that he makes with his life. You see, the decisions that Lot made and continue to make are what shape this entire passage that we look at this evening. In this passage, we have a very specific in some ways, but vague in the others, description of kings going to war, of nations being conquered, and this strange invasion that seems out of place almost in this portion of Scripture. Like I said, the chapter before was about Abraham and Lot, conversations they had, the Lord speaking to Abram, commanding him to look around at all this land that I'm giving to you. And then chapter 14 opens with these five kings fighting against these four kings, and all of them essentially being found almost nowhere else. But what we see as we look at these verses is, again, a very quick a very harsh conquering of a land that was promised to Abram. And then at verse 12, the key verse, as Lot is captured. And as we go through all 16 of these verses, what we will see, Lord willing, at the end of the evening is not that this is detached from the rest of Scripture's, some critical scholars think this is put in later just to make Abraham look good. But no, we believe that this is the divine word of God, inspired and inerrant. And we will see how this portion where Abraham, Abram, you'll have to forgive me if I say Abraham because he's still Abram at this point, is established by God as the ruler of the land that the Lord has given to him. Our theme as we look at these verses this evening will be God's sovereign promises cannot be thwarted either by kings or by fools. 
our three points. We'll look through the first point at verses 1 through 11, a rebellion that is used for God's purposes. Verse 12, you cannot serve God and mammon. And point 3, sorry, I think I said verse 2, but point 2. And then point 3 is a king and redeemer comes from Hebron. As I said, as we open up with our first point, this portion of Scripture is full of a colorful narrative of what occurs in the land of Canaan on both sides of the Jordan River. The land of Canaan, as many of you I'm sure know, is on the east side of the Mediterranean Sea. And coming down more on the east side of it is the Jordan River, which splits it in half. On the other side of the Jordan River is what is called the King's Highway, a major trade route that went north and south for nations from the north who wanted to do trade with Egypt and the land of, on the continent we now know as Africa. Abraham had just settled on the west side of the Jordan River in the hill country by the Oaks of Mamre. And Lot, having chosen to live by sight instead of by faith, had moved away from Abram and gone down to the land where the Dead Sea is roughly now. And he had pitched his tent, we read in verse, or chapter 13, near the city of Sodom. Sodom and Gomorrah are known already. Back when it said that Lot pitched his tent, they are known to be wicked cities. If we look back to chapter 10 of Genesis, if you have your Bibles open, I encourage you to keep them open because we'll be flipping through Genesis and Deuteronomy just a little bit. In chapter 10 of Genesis, we find that the four cities that are inhabited, or I'm sorry, four of the five cities we know are inhabited by descendants of Ham and his son Canaan, whom God cursed because of Ham's shameful treatment of his father Noah. It was sworn by God in chapter 9 of Genesis, verses 25 through 27, that Canaan would serve his brothers, Shem and Japheth. It even says in verse 25 that he would be a servant of servants, that these his brothers. And so at the beginning of chapter 14, what we see is not just a random rebellion against Keterleomer by these other kings, but we see these kings, these descendants of Ham, rebelling against what God had promised would occur. We know this because Keterleomer is called the king of Elam. And Elam, in chapter 10, verse 22, is a son of Shem. He was ruling over those nations as God had ordained. They were his servant kings. And they rebel against him. But not only against him, but they rebel against the very word of God. This is the occasion that brings these kings over from Babylon area and down into the promised land of Canaan. This is the occasion that the Lord is using as he's going to bring about the exaltation of his chosen servant Abram and establish him as the ruler of the land that the Lord has brought him to. These things are not occurring outside of the control of our God and our King. We confess that nothing happens apart from the will of God. 
And as we will see again as we go through this text, all of these things are done in such a way as to establish Abraham, God's promised servant, who will be known as the king of Canaan. We profess that all things work together according to God's perfect plan. That's in Heidelberg question and answer one. It is our comfort. And it is shown again and again through scriptures how God can use even the actions of wicked men to serve his purposes. You can think very quickly of Joseph and his brothers and how Joseph was mistreated by his brothers and then by Potiphar. And then he finally was raised from the depths of the prison to save the lives of many. In a more ultimate way, you can think of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, who was crucified on a cross. The most unjust thing that ever occurred because he was truly innocent, something no mere mortal man can claim. So, again, what is occurring in these verses is the Lord using even wicked men to serve his purposes. As Abraham, as Lot, live in this world that appears to be ravaged all around by war, in these verses, we can be reminded of our own world around us today. We see wars. There was first just Russia and Ukraine, but now Israel, Hamas. We are thankful for the ceasefire, of course, but we see things seeming to unravel in the world all around us and give us cause for worry. Is our Lord truly in control? Is everything truly occurring according to His sovereign plan? And as we see in these verses, there's nothing outside of our God's control. There's a comfort to us as we can read these and we can be reminded that our God ordains everything that comes to pass. Even very, very wicked men serve His purposes. And that doesn't just apply for Bible times. It applies for us too. As we look at this text in the first 11 verses, it would seem that the whole land of Canaan is going to be destroyed by these invading kings who came from the east. They wipe, they wipe out basically the entire eastern side of the Jordan as they come from the north down to the south. They go all the way down to the Gulf. And then since they ran out of space, well, they turn around and they start going north again defeating nations the whole way. It's very rapid fire as we read these verses. There's no descriptions of battles, sieges. It's just they came, they saw, they conquered. And then they moved on. What is being recorded for us is a description of what seems to be an unstoppable force. An army that cannot be thwarted. As I said at the beginning, the route that they come down on the eastern side initially is the highway of the kings. And the nations that they conquer there, these are not just puny little towns that they wiped out. Because if we go to Deuteronomy 2, in Deuteronomy 2 it speaks of the Emim, the Rephaim, and the Zuzim as all being peoples great and tall like the Anakim. They were giants. These were nations of giant warriors. And they were simply conquered by as if nothing happened. As the people of Israel would have read this, as Moses wrote it down for them, they would recognize this. 
This is a band of kings that, again, appear to be unstoppable. They simply mow down everyone in their path. And that's even nations that wasn't the reason they initially came to the land of Canaan. These were just ones that were seemingly in the way. So we might ask ourselves, why is this needed? Why is this necessary in Scripture? Couldn't Moses just wrote down that Sodom was conquered and Lot was kidnapped, and so now Abraham had to go save him. But again, Moses is impressing upon his readers that who Abraham has to go and save Lot from later is not just a tiny band of a few, I don't know, you wild men? This is a large federation, four significant kings who came in and were wiping out everyone from the least to the greatest. But I remind you again that although these men seem to be unstoppable, a force that has to be reckoned with, but you probably don't want to, these are tools. They are being used by our God to bring to Him the glory that He deserves and to establish His chosen one as the ruler of Canaan. As we read through the first 11 verses, it's rapid fire. But when we get to verse 12, the whole thing switches. It's the hinge point for the chapter. It's where Lot is captured. As we look at Lot and we see where he's come in life, we have to stop and we have to recognize what has happened. As I said earlier, the last mention of Lot is in verse 12 of chapter 13. Abraham settled in the land of Canaan. And while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. The next verse says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. When Lot and Abraham realized that they couldn't live in the same place together, Abraham, living by faith, trusted that wherever he went in life, the Lord would bless him. Lot, on the other hand, simply used his physical vision and he saw that the ground looks good over there. So I'm going to go there. I'm going to get the best stuff I can have so I can be as prosperous as possible. It doesn't necessarily matter who my neighbors are. The last note regarding Lot's dwelling, though, was that he moved his tent as far as Sodom. He was still outside of the city, at least. But now, we find Lot dwelling in Sodom. Lot's bad choices have come to roost in his life. In verse 12, he's captured as a prisoner with all of his possessions because he's dwelling in Sodom. And in this one verse, there are multiple warnings that we have to take heed of. How often do we think about how we position ourselves in life? 
How often do we contemplate what we surround ourselves with in the world, whether it comes to our physical where we live, the jobs that we hold, the schools maybe that you attend, the people you call your friends? Do we think about these things seriously? In our passage here today, we see what can happen when we alienate ourselves from the people of God. There was no other churches in Canaan, is a way to analogize it. There was no live streaming option in the Jordan Valley where Lot went to live. He left the one whom the Lord communed with. He left the area that had the only good Reformed Bible-believing church in it and went to live the red-light district of Amsterdam, Las Vegas. Take your pick. There is no spiritual food for Lot near and in Sodom. something we have to think about. Some of you know me. And some of you may know that we moved this spring outside of the town of Dyer and now we live surrounded by a bunch of cornfields. And the little dairy farmer boy inside of me goes, yes, no neighbors. They have to cross a cornfield and I can see them coming. But what kind of an attitude is that? Do I have an opportunity to witness to anybody anymore? I'm not saying I'm going to move back to Dyer real quick because we actually have a yard to live in and now the kids can play outside. But we have to consider these things. Do we just move as far away from society as we want to because I don't have to deal with society's problems anymore? Do we move to a place where well, there's not really like a URC or an OBC or any kind of Bible-believing church, but there's a community church and they seem really nice. But when you attend, this spiritual food is table scraps. You have nobody in the world for you to evangelize, to try to spread the good news of the gospel to because we all live far too far apart. Do we think about how often, how frequently we should be communing with our God, whether in corporate worship, in our personal devotions, in church functions, Bible studies, being fed and nourished by the gospel? Or are there things that we value higher in life? Like a job that pays super well, but I have no time to serve the church because I work from sunup to sundown, sometimes on Sundays because the boss needs me to, but if I keep working Sundays, I'm hoping he'll give me a promotion and then I won't have to work Sundays anymore. Brothers and sisters, I did that. I was a police officer before I came to Mid-America and I had to work every other Sunday for about three years. My spiritual diet was cut in half. And I will not tell you what that did to me. 
for those years. But it is dangerous. Do not cut yourself off from the Word of God and from His people. By the grace of God, I was given a position that gave me the ability to return to church every Sunday with my family. I cannot tell you the grace that was extended to me. We have to learn from Lot. We cannot separate ourselves from God's Word or there will be consequences for our actions that will be revealed in your life. We are called to be a part of the body of Christ. If you are separated from the vine, you will die. Read John 15. We are separated from the living Word of God. You cannot be fed. You will die. And if a branch does not produce fruit, if it is dead, it is chopped off and thrown into the fire. Parents, do you emphasize these things for your children? Is it more important that your child attends a giant college with a great graduation rate of placement in the job that they desire while it offers them no spiritual guidance, no moral compass whatsoever? Or is it more important that your child attends a Christian college that might be smaller, it might not have all of the clout of a big university, but they will be spiritually fed and nourished? Maybe a school that is close to a Bible-believing Reformed church so that if they cannot come home, they have a place to go to get away from the sin of the world and to be fed, to be cared for by servants of God. Do we emphasize these things in our daily life? Do we value time spent among the body of believers? Or is it just an option for a couple times on Sunday for a few hours? I pray that we are all warned by Lot. I was once told that a wise man learns from other people's mistakes. So as we read this, we are challenged to learn from Lot. Not to separate ourselves from the body of Christ. Because as we see... It has serious consequences. Lot was captured while he was inside the city. He wasn't even involved in the battle. He was so dead in his trespasses and sins, he did not even realize the danger that he was in. It's as if he was still in his house. We are called to be awake and aware. And that occurs when we are fed when we are nourished, when we are spiritually alive in Christ. As we read through the Bible, as we read through the wonderful stories that are written in it, we often find ourselves identifying with different people, especially as we read Old Testament narratives. We read David and Goliath. We, we learn in Sunday school to be like Goliath, or to be like Goliath. Don't be like Goliath, but to be like David, trusting in God even when we encounter a world that seems 
like it cannot be converted, cannot be stopped in its headlong plunge into hell. We're told to be like Daniel and his friends, to be strong in our faith, to serve the Lord, even if it could cost us our lives. And so I don't forget the ladies were charged to be like Rahab and like Ruth, which actually applies a lot more to our passage today because these ladies saw the world for what it was by the grace of God, and they attached themselves to God's people knowing that that was where the true God was found. That was where blessing was to be found. We hope and we pray that God will give us the faith, the strength, the integrity to be like these men and women. And we have to pray for forgiveness during the times that we are not. For the times that we are far more like Lot than we are like Abraham. When we stray, we pray that the Lord would bring us back through His grace. That He would once again encircle us in His fold. There are times when we are good and faithful pilgrims. And we praise God for His work in us that enables us to be those people. But I pray that you, like me, are ashamed of the times that we are not. And we pray that the Lord would refine us. And that He would work in us that we would have a deeper trust in Him and a deeper desire to serve Him to live in His presence. And our final point, as we consider the King and the Redeemer in this passage, we are finally once again introduced to Abraham in verse 13. Abraham, the last time we found him, had pitched his tents in Hebron. It's a very important place in the history of Israel. Again, as I said earlier, when Moses' readers would read this portion of Scripture and the name Hebron came up, there would be some significant times in their history that came to mind. Hebron is where Abram, Sarai, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Jacob are buried in the cave of Machpelah, which is to the east of Hebron. Hebron is where David was anointed king, both of Judah and of Israel. And here at Hebron is where an escapee from the people who were kidnapped flees to find the only one who will help. Abraham, the kinsman of Lot. The original Hebrew uses the same word that translates as brother. It's not actually his brother, it's his nephew. So why does it use the same word for brother? Well, hopefully I'll make that clear in a few minutes. What we find as we look at Lot and Abraham is we have Lot who, trusting in his eyes, not living by faith, has separated himself from the place of communion with God, which was with Abraham. We found someone who has, in his poor choices, think Garden of Eden, has plunged himself and his family, his descendants, 
into what appears to be life of captivity, maybe death. Depends on what these kings decide when they get back to Babylon. And what does Abram do? What does Abram say? Well, Lot's getting what he deserves. He should have known better. Does he wait for Lot to send a messenger saying, please save me. I need help. No, this is someone who says, hey, Lot's in trouble. It doesn't say that this is someone Lot knew. But Abram doesn't wait. He doesn't wait for Lot to raise himself up to have the freedom, the willpower to request help. This is a man who's as good as dead. How is he going to save himself? He's again in the clutches of these unstoppable kings. Their armies have wiped out everybody. Lot is going to need a powerful redeemer. And he doesn't even know it. There are some neat things, some very interesting things as we look at the verses 14 through 16. There's a very amazing word that is used that we translate as led out, as in Abram led out his servants. That word is used a few different ways in Scripture, some amazing ways in Scripture. It can be used like unsheathing a sword. It's used constantly, many, many references. I don't have them all written down. Throughout the Old Testament of unsheathing a sword, taking out a sword as you're about to go to battle. So it's as if Abraham unleashes his servants, his trained warriors, as he pursues these wicked kings to save unworthy Lot. But it's also used in a way of pouring out. The most beautiful verse that that's used in is Malachi 3 verse 10. When it says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And therefore put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Abram's enemies, who are God's enemies, as they seek to establish dominion over the kingdom that's been promised to Abraham, will have the wrath of God poured out upon them as he un unsheaths his sword, the sword of Abram against them. Revelation 19 speaks of the rider on the white horse, none other than our Lord Jesus Christ, who will unsheath the sword of his mouth as he punishes the enemies of God. He will conquer them, driving them into the lake of fire. But our Lord Jesus Christ also poured out His blood on the cross as He gave Himself for our sins, redeeming us from death. He left the glories of heaven, the place of a king, as Abram leaves the place where the kings are later crowned. 
And he redeems those who through their choices have plunged themselves into sin. You see, like Lot, we are, we were in bondage to sin. We no longer are because we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. Worthless sinners, we have been saved by the sacrificial life of our Lord and Savior. And while Abram didn't have to die to redeem Lot, he did risk his life the sake of his brother. But he didn't redeem him temporarily. Our Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry, did not redeem us temporarily. Lot was redeemed temporarily. We have been redeemed eternally. As we read through this chapter, we are reminded of the promises and the faithfulness of our God that even when things are falling apart, even when unworthy sinners are captured and are as good as dead. There is redemption. Praise be to God that even though we are at times unfaithful, He is always faithful. His promises are yes and amen. They are sovereign and true and no collaboration of kings can thwart them. His promises of punishment on the wicked are as sure as His promises of blessing are to His chosen people. Our Redeemer has come. And He is coming again. We long for the day when He will come upon the clouds of glory, taking us to Himself where there will be no more sin, no more shame, no more pain, no more suffering. A place of perfect communion with the Father, the Son, the Holy Ghost. So we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Our gracious God and our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, the promises found therein, those that remind us of your faithfulness, your love for your children, your power over the forces of evil. And that all things work together for the good of those who love you. So we pray, Father, that you would strengthen us for this earthly walk that you have called us to, that you would give us hearts that truly love you, that seek to spend time in your presence, that seek to be near to you, that trust in you even during times when things look bleak. Remind us once again, work in our hearts the comfort knowing that we are in Christ Jesus, and so we are as secure as those who have gone before us. We cannot be taken from your hand. We praise you. We bless you. We come before you in Jesus' name. Amen.